beneath the refinery's blue, out where the great black rivers pool, license registration. and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, and joining me today, he is the man who played Uncle Tony in Adventures in Wonder Park, the animated original TV series, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I have no idea who Uncle Tony is. I have no idea what Adventures in Wonder Park was. Is there a synopsis there? Maybe it's uh, you, the pandemic. It's it's. <laughs> I, I've been so, eating too many sweet rolls. I think the sugar's affecting my brain. Well, my understanding is Adventures in Wonder Park is an animated uh, version of the film Wonder Park. It's a Paramount animation television series. Maybe you haven't recorded this yet, and it's just on your IMDb, but uh, it's showing as though it's already been completed in 2020. So... Oh well, well that could be wonderful then if it's if it's a job. It's one of the few jobs we could still do yeah. during the pandemic is is voiceover work. So David, from your mouth to <laughs> Paramount's ears. So you're saying you have no idea about this thing and you haven't done it yet. <laughs> I know nothing about a wonder park. Okay, well you know it's interesting. I was going to ask you about this. So we we often don't prep these opening segments in advance we like we like the frisson of like me throwing something out there that <laughs> that steven doesn't know about and what's interesting about wonder park is this is an animated film that came out in 2019 and it was interesting because it was missing a credit like there was one person who is not credited in the movie do you know do you know what role that person had like there no. was no credit for this part of this person who is part of the producing you know team no who uh the director there was no director credited <laughs> for this movie wonder park <laughs> that's uh, that's usually a problem when it, there's no director it's uh it's very atypical for a movie to be released with no director uh attached to like officially credited but apparently the director was removed and they somehow finished the movie anyway and they didn't credit the director at all so uh, I was going to ask you, you know, w- what do you think about a movie without a director? Do you think that's uh, have you ever done a movie without a director? Put it that way. I've done a movie without a director that had directors, uh, different directors. <laughs> they right. just didn't direct. I mean, I mean, one of the first films I was in, I played Man Crossing a Soccer Field, and uh, Andy Mendelson was the director on that one. Wait, and he tell me, you were the Man Crossing a Soccer Field. Yeah, it was one of my first credits I Amazing. put on my resume. Yeah, and and Andy Mendelson said, we just need you to walk across this soccer field. And I didn't know that he had told all the kids that were playing soccer to tackle me. So I just thought I was going to have an acting part, but as it was, I was a punching dummy for all these kids. Now, in this case, Andy was being a good director, I guess, is that he wanted the real look of surprise on my face. Uh, 
I remember, I remember something Jonathan Demme did in Swing Shift is that's the movie where the women in World War II have to start working in the factories. And they had real riveters come in, and he brought me and a couple people in. He says, I want you to hear what a riveter sounds like. And then Jonathan had the riveter rivet, and of course it was so loud it made everyone jump. But he said, don't tell anybody else how loud this is. We want to get it on film. And then we brought in all the women who were in the film. We, they all sat down. Jonathan yelled, action, and it caught the sound and expression of surprise, which I think is the essence of film directing, David. I do think. Yeah, so I, I think what you're saying is that sometimes when people are directing, uh, they don't necessarily direct everything. They just kind of... No. They're like winding up a like a toy and just seeing what happens Put, you know, triggering right. the Rube Goldberg machine or something like that. Basically. Yeah, and it depends on a director's individual level of sadism as to how much surprise he actually gets on film. Well, speaking of sadism, you left us with a bit of a cliffhanger <laughs> at the end of last week's episode of the podcast. Uh, oh, episode, gosh. I want to say, 88, the recurring character. Uh, mm -hmm. We've gotten a few emails about like what is going to happen, when's the next episode of the podcast dropping. What do you have to say about that, Stephen? Well, as a matter of fact, I, David, I've just gotten lots of emails this past few weeks asking when the podcast will resume, but I find this encouraging. It's nice to be remembered and even nicer to be remembered favorably, although it is a testament to the perversity of the human spirit that I recently got a charge when someone introduced me to his wife or girlfriend, whoever she was, as the skankiest guy he's ever known. Now, I had no idea who this person was. I didn't know if he was an actor I'd worked with when I was playing someone skanky, or he mistook me for one of his old acquaintances who was a skank in real life. But the point is, my ego, David, was so hungry, I was happy to know that I was at the top of a stranger's most skanky list. And this is why we are doomed. Despite education, upbringing, or good intentions— most of what we do is a mindless reflex to earn the approval of strangers. This is why I avoid guitar stores. <laughs> the call for resuming the podcast is also distressing. I haven't been able to write. In the last year, I've been working a lot as an actor. I've had to spend every second memorizing lines. And it's not just learning the part. This is television. So most of my work is unlearning the part. Sitcoms have exhausting schedules. Every day you rehearse the show. You usually do a run-through for writers and executives. That night they email you a new script with every joke you didn't understand still in the show and all of your favorite moments gone, gone forever. When you work on a play, every opening night is like a birth. It's so exciting. You have opening night parties, you pop the top of the champagne, hoping the little one will be well-reviewed by the times. In television, every show you do is like a divorce. You struggle to make it work. At a certain point, you shoot it. It's done, finished, you drive away. Halfway home, you could hardly remember what the show was about. By the time you wash off the makeup, turn off the light, all you have left is the memory of the effort you spent to make the show good and the fear that you didn't succeed. When you finish shooting a television show, there are no parties, no champagne. Just like a divorce, there's just a small public notice that you have moved on with your life. 
these notices are compiled on IMDb and euphemistically called a resume. If you think about it, IMDb is one of the saddest websites on earth. It's a list of endings. The number of hopes and dreams attached to each of those projects is enough to drown the world in tears. When I'm not unlearning lines, I watch television. I don't watch real television shows. That's too hard for me. It reminds me of past relationships. I watch things off the beaten track, like the show about Alaska real estate. I think I do it just to watch people more deluded than me. Yes, sweetheart, let's buy this house on the lake that's either frozen or filled with mosquito larvae. I picture standing with Anne on a pasture of mud looking at a two-story shack saying, Baby, I know the place needs a little elbow grease. Don't worry, I'll buy some tools and build a bathroom before winter. When the Alaska real estate shows lost their charm, I had to move on to the harder stuff. The show about Alaska state troopers. They have to arrest all the people that just moved to Alaska, usually because they got drunk and started walking down the middle of the road after midnight looking for their car. When I saw that they kept arresting the same people over and over again, I pushed the channel button. I went further away from civilization and watched Life Below Zero. Wow. This is a show where seriously singular people who've lost a lot of teeth set up shop in an insulated pipe 150 miles north of the Arctic Circle. They don't say it in so many words, but these folk have given up on humanity. The biggest mystery of this show is not how they survived the harsh winters. But when they're interviewed in the spring, how they all gain so much weight? I figure they must eat a lot of salmon or drink bottles and bottles of alcohol. Yeah, I'm guessing option number two. One night, instead of watching Life Below Zero, I watched the cable TV guide and tried to count all of the shows currently airing about Alaska. And I wrote them down. I'm sure this is not a complete list, but we've got Alaska, Buying Alaska, Building Alaska, Alaska Monster, Highway Through Hell, Life Below Zero, Alaska State Trooper, Alaska The Final Frontier, Alaska The Final Frontier Revealed, Alaskan Bush People, Dr. D. Alaskan Vet, Alaska Hunting, Alaska Proof, Living Alaska, Yukon Men, and Extreme Alaska. Aren't you glad we don't just have three channels anymore? Footnote, my Pilates teacher informed me that Yukon Men takes place in Canada, not Alaska. I watched it again. Yes, she is correct. However, I think it's a distinction without a difference. The people still hunt with crossbows and wear hats with ear flaps, and that says Alaska to me. Lately, I've given up on scripted and non-scripted television, and I've been watching a lot of baseball. Not sure why. I suspect I've reached a stage in my life where I want to watch something that moves slower than I do. When you watch baseball, you see lots of commercials for trucks, trucks and automobiles. And I saw one the other day that illustrated another reason why we are all doomed. The commercial was for a nice SUV. It concludes with the car driving away. The young dad and mom are in the front seat, baby girl strapped into her car seat and back. The announcer tags the commercial with this visionary line, we at, name of car company, know that tomorrow starts with today. The line sounded wrong, and I thought about it and understood why. Tomorrow doesn't start with today. It starts with yesterday.
This isn't just a semantic difference. Tomorrow is not a product of the present. It is the product of the past. It's possible that the car people knew this, but felt it wasn't a good sales pitch to say, yesterday's ideas tomorrow. Makes it sound like their car isn't cutting edge. And that's another reason why we're all doomed. When we look for the cutting edge, we're looking in the wrong place. There is no cutting edge. It is the shiny object that makes us think solutions to our problems lie somewhere out there in the realm of the new. That with just a different bit of technology and better hair care products, we would be reborn as our better selves. As I write this, I am surrounded by my cutting edges. They're all being recharged. Every outlet is occupied. Wires, cables everywhere. There's even a waiting line. Yeah, I have to recharge every night now. The batteries don't last as long as they used to. Yet for the thousand dollars it costs to have a phone that also doubles as a bad camera to take pictures of my desserts, my cutting edge has left me, and probably everyone else who bought the last wave of cutting edges vulnerable to being blown back to the Stone Age by a cyber attack. It is the portrait of not if, but when. The only question is which device will be used by which country to buy airline tickets to Korea with their new Stephen Tobolowsky American Express cards. I know the fierce opposition to this argument is in the area of science. We have penicillin. We have new cancer therapies that promise longer and more productive lives. I am alive due to heart surgery procedures that weren't available in my father's era. But generally, science doesn't care about creating something new. It tries to understand what nature gave us to begin with. Take penicillin. The ability to have something called an antibiotic existed before Alexander Fleming went away on vacation and didn't clean his Petri dishes. Einstein didn't invent the theory of relativity. It was there from the beginning of time. He was just able to see it and give it a name. I could argue that his gift wasn't his genius for physics, but that he was a linguist who could understand what the stars have been trying to tell us for millions of years. Even my heart surgeon's literal cutting edge wasn't terribly cutting. His parting words to me in the hospital were, Stephen, the operation was a success. I pretty much guaranteed you'll die of cancer. Looking for something that is the next cutting edge is an advertiser's way of saying that the present is unacceptable. All you need is something else, something more, a car, a digital tablet, clothes with a horizontal stripe, even more television shows about Alaska. But the real more we want, the real more we feel we need, is being reborn as people who won't cheat, who won't lie, and who know better. That future started yesterday. If I believe the man talking to the family in the SUV that their future starts today, I would be very sad. For me, that would mean that the future wouldn't include the Beatles, Beth, Claire Richards, my mother, our cat Tiger, who was a big part of making me who I am today. It wouldn't include Joan Potter or my high school drama teacher, Mary Curtis. It wouldn't include my old classmate, Jim McClure, or Paul Freeman, the man with the purple nose who gave me butter pecan ice cream when I was a little boy. I'm not sure I could live in a future that starts today.
It would include too much time for getting my old lines, while the writers work into the night trying to give me something better to say, something clever, something with an edge, with the most I could hope for being another amicable divorce next week. I had a dream the other night that may have changed me. It's too soon to tell. It certainly has made me see my past differently. Consequently, it could change my future. In the dream, I was at a party at someone's home. People were laughing and talking. Music was playing. I didn't know anyone there. I walked through all of the happy conversations and noticed that there was a washing machine in every room. No one seemed to notice this but me. I moved from room to room to investigate, and then I sensed I was not alone. I turned, and there was Susie Ullum. I knew Susie in high school. She was on the debate team. Susie was very smart, very cute. She was younger than me by maybe a year or two, so we were never in classes together. We were friendly, but we weren't friends. I've not seen or spoken to her since graduation. This dream is the first time I thought of Susie Ullum in 50 years. Yet to Susie's credit, she told me something that made other mysteries in life seem to make sense. Susie? She gave me the warmest smile and said, Stephen, is that you? I asked. It is. Well, how are you? She said, I'm, I'm good. Well, well, you look happy, I said. And you look like you aren't. Are you having a problem? Susie asked with the little wicked twinkle in her eye that was her calling card. Susie, I don't understand why there's so many washing machines in the house. Susie laughed and said, well, they usually aren't here, but today is Mayhem Day. Mayhem Day? What is that? Mayhem is when you turn things on their heads. You intentionally do the wrong thing just to see what happens, said Susie. I said, I "I know what mayhem is, Susie. I just didn't know it had its own day. Susie laughed again. Well, it's a movable holiday. She took my arm and started walking me to the door. People hate mayhem, Stephen, she explained patiently. They usually see it as the world spiraling out of control and end. But mayhem day is here to remind us that it could change the world. Ben Franklin and his kite, the atomic bomb, vaccinations. Think about the first person who ate a tomato, even though it's in the same family as the deadly nightshade. He may have been trying to kill himself, but he changed salads forever. I woke up. My mind was flooded with moments of mayhem during my life that have changed the world. Rock and roll, birth control pills, anesthesia, Basically, the entire 1960s. Did mayhem in the specific lead to a culture of mayhem, or vice versa? 
Thank God they filmed Woodstock so there's visual proof. Chaos came from every quarter. It hitchhiked. It jumped fences. It took a lot of drugs. It did not bring sunblock. Sometimes it was accidental. Sometimes it was organized. But it was always invited. I got out of bed and staggered downstairs to feed the cats. In my waking consciousness, I realized that Susie Ullum helped me come to terms with one of the most disturbing, reoccurring characters in my life. Me. I have always been running from a future that follows me. I've done so many things that are inexplicable. I told my son Robert about a couple events in my past. Footnote, my children don't listen to my podcast. Maybe it's the same thing as not friending your parents on Facebook. At a certain point in the tale, Robert looked at me and said, Gosh, Dad, you are incredibly stupid. I moved to Los Angeles in 1976, alone. Beth remained in Illinois performing a show about Abraham Lincoln called The Lincoln Show. In her absence, I lived in two different apartments. The first was filled with ants. The second one featured a naked man out of my living room window. I wanted something nice to start our life together in Los Angeles. Shortly after Beth's arrival, I found a little bungalow on Hayworth Street. So far, the story makes sense. But then I chose the swing on my front porch as my office. Mayhem. Beth and I spent Friday nights with T-Bone and Betty drinking malt liquor and reading magazines that featured topless women riding motorcycles. Mayhem. I started smoking extremely weak marijuana I bought from my friend Ron Calizo, partly to impress Beth that I was hip enough to be a drug addict. Mayhem. But this life, a life of subtle but pervasive mayhem, felt completely normal. Probably because I was listening to the same music. This is something I need to tell Susie Ullum next time she appears in my dream. Art is timeless. It has the ability to transcend good times and bad. For example, listening to Bruce Springsteen sing Racing in the Streets has the ability to make any moment you listen to Bruce singing Racing in the Streets feel like the same moment. Mayhem. After Beth won the Pulitzer, many producers wanted to work with her. One of them was Imrik Oros, a director from Hungary. He told me a story when his home and family had been destroyed by the communists. He was alone. In his moment of despair, he took the last few coins he had from his pocket and spent them to go to an art museum. I said, Imrik, you're kidding. Imrik looked at me with smiling eyes filled with sadness and a kind of compassion one only has after experiencing great suffering and said, no, Stephen, I'm not kidding. Those paintings were the only friends I had left. I knew them all. I loved them all. It was a wonderful day, the best I had had in many, many years. I've always loved great painting and sculpture, but music more than any other art form has stitched together epics of my life. I was relaxing on the front porch, listening to darkness on the edge of town, smoking a reefer when I met Mark. He flashed a badge and introduced himself as a plainclothes policeman. He threatened to arrest me. Mark thought this was hilarious. Mayhem. In actuality, Mark was a lineman for the L.A. County. He fixed power poles and rainstorms. He lived in the apartment building next to our house. 
Over the next few weeks, he became a regular visitor. He'd stroll up at sundown and sit with me on the front porch. I'd offer him a beer, we'd listen to music, light up a joint, look at biker girls on motorcycles. Mark was affable, full of charm. He had blonde hair and hazel eyes. He was kind of goofy, kind of handsome in a country boy way. He loved to laugh. He told jokes we used to tell in sixth grade, like book titles, Under the Grandstands by Seymour Butts, or Hawaiian Holiday by Kamanawanaleya. Mark never came inside. He never asked. And Beth, in an unusual moment of drawing a line in the sand, said, Who is that man you always talk to out front? Uh, Beth, his name is Mark. He lives next door. Beth nodded and said, I don't want him in this house. What? I asked Beth. Beth had never met him. I don't think she had even seen his face. I mean it, Beth said. Don't invite him in. Don't invite him out to dinner with us. I won't. But why, I asked. Beth stared into space for a moment, looking for a reason, and then said, I don't like the way he laughs. It wasn't an issue. Mark never asked to come inside. He never asked if he could tag along when we went to the movies. I figured he had a girlfriend or was just killing time till she got home from work. One evening, Mark brought up a new topic. So what do you grow out back in your garden? Zucchini and dead roses, Mark. Mark cackled. Listen, you got a lot of land back there, which is nice. But what is nicer is that no one can see the back part of your yard from the street. Oh, you mean my secret garden? Mark grinned. Yeah, I was thinking we could take care of a lot of problems at once. Problems? I smiled. Yeah, you have terrible weed. No offense, but when I smoke this, I feel like I'm literally smoking grass. I mean, from your lawn or something. You need quality weed if you really want to party. Well, that's true. Yes, said Mark. You got land. I've got seeds. I mean, I got good seeds. You could grow it. I could sell it. We'll split the money. Sounds good to me, I said. Mark nodded. Yeah, no downside. Weather's perfect, lots of sun. Those babies will grow fast. In a few weeks, we'll pull them up, cure them, bag the buds. Mark clapped his hands in excitement at the thought. I could sell the stuff at work. You won't have to do a thing. I'll give you half the money for your trouble. Plus, of course, you could take whatever you want before we sell. We shook hands. Mark leapt up out of the swing and vanished around the corner, and he hollered, I'll be right back. A few minutes later, he came over with a little leather drawstring bag that Jack might have used to kept his magic beans in. Mark loosened the top and spilled six seeds into his hand. He pushed the seeds playfully around in his palm with his finger. Hey, beautiful, huh? Ain't they? Uh, sure are. What are they? Mark separated two seeds out. This is Northern California Sensimilla. See, they're still sticky from the THC. These are going to make very dense, very heavy buds. These two over there, that's Maui Wowie. Oh, those are from Hawaii? Yeah, from Maui. This stuff will knock you on your ass. You don't want to waste it in a joint. Best to bong it or use it in a pipe. You have a bong? Uh, no. But you have a pipe. No, not really a dope pipe. I have a tobacco pipe. I bought it at a dime store for a plate. No, 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 man, man. You need to get a pipe. 
You need to get a bong. Right. I'll buy those with some of the money we'll make when you sell this. And I'm pretty much putting everything I earn into rent and beer with the occasional restaurant. Yeah, and an occasional easy rider, Mark elbowed me and winked. Mark, one question. Is it legal to plant these in the yard? Legal? Technically, no, but it's not prosecutable. I don't understand. What does that mean? Well, Stephen, they're weeds. That's why they call it weed. It grows along the side of the road, so some seeds landed in your yard. Footnote. It was at this point in the story when my son Robert said, Gosh, Dad, you are incredibly stupid. Mark pointed at the last two seeds with a sort of reverence. Now, these two babies. Oh, man. These two babies are special. This is blue indica. Hard to find, man. These plants can bush out. I may have to come over and show you how to prune them, but they're beautiful. Guess what color the leaves are? Uh, blue? Yeah, now, more like blue-green, but that's how it got its name. And these will knock you on your ass, too? Oh, yeah, yeah, all of these will knock you on your ass. Well, great, I said. I'll plant them tomorrow. Like hell you will, said Mark. You'll plant them tonight, under the full moon. That's when you want to plant them. That's when you want to harvest them. Right, right, I'll, I'll plant them tonight in the secret garden, and we'll see what happens. Mayhem. I was on a plane flight and I noticed that the man sitting next to me was wearing an unusual watch. It didn't have a face. I asked him about it. He says, well, it doesn't have a face because it's not a watch. It doesn't tell time. You see, I'm a professional diver. He pointed to his wrist. This tells me which way is up. When you're over 100 feet under the water, there's no light. And the pressure makes it impossible to know up from down. If the nitrogen and oxygen mix in the tanks is off just by a little, you could become disoriented. Even professionals drowned. It happens when the diver thinks he's swimming to the surface, but instead he swims deeper and deeper until he runs out of air. This little gadget is my lifesaver. Mayhem is the ocean that keeps us from finding safety. In Los Angeles, in late 1977-78, I had a job in children's theater, which I cherished. But any movement toward a real career in acting, and by that I mean film, I mean television, large-scale professional theater, it was impossible. Equity theaters were required back then to have open auditions for all card-carrying members. The Mark Taper Forum was going to do a production of A Long Day's Journey Into Night, starring Charlton Heston. I love this play. 
I knew it well. I saw a great production at SMU with Joan Potter as Mary Tyrone. To her credit, she was very good. And to my credit, I was able to admit that she was. I thought I could be a good Edmund, the younger brother, the poet gone to see who suffered with tuberculosis. I had a lot of thick, crazy hair back then, so I looked poetic. I was skinny enough to look sick. I thought it was worth a shot. I studied one of Edmund's famous monologues, how he lost himself looking at the sea one night beneath the stars and became rhythm and beauty and moonlight. It's a pretty good speech. I worked on it for a couple of weeks. I memorized it. I showed up Saturday morning at the Mark Taper Annex to audition. There were about 200 people ahead of me. Another 200 came after me, all with scripts or Xerox copies folded and unfolded dozens of times. I waited for three hours. Finally, it was my turn. I walked in. Three people sat behind the table, a middle-aged man, two younger women. I offered my resume and headshot. The man took it. And you are, the man asked me. I pointed to the resume, which he held, uh, Stephen Tobolowsky. He looked at the resume and photo and raised his eyebrows, the number of O's separated by consonants in my name. Uh, I'd like to read for Edmund. The casting director looked at me over my picture. Not necessary. You're not right for this one. Not right? Sorry. How do you know? What? He said with mild irritation. How do you know I'm not right? I, I haven't done anything yet. I know because we've seen a lot of people and we know what we want. But you may need an understudy. Thank you for coming in. We'll keep your resume for the future. I looked at the invisible watch on my wrist and knew which way was up. They weren't impatient because they couldn't find the right people for the play. They were upset because the play was already cast. Probably for months. But they had to be here all day on a Saturday to not audition people and collect resumes, which they would throw in the trash at the end of the day. All to fulfill an empty promise made by the union. This audition had a powerful effect on me. I knew how much I put into learning that part and how little it was considered. I always thought the wall I had to break through in Hollywood was getting seen, that they would eventually give me a chance when they saw what I could do. I didn't understand that that wall was protected by another wall, the wall of the willfully blind. There was an army of people who were paid not to see whose sole purpose was to placate the thousands that come to Los Angeles and would be satisfied with the meager diet of possibility. With the phone call back home on Sunday, Hey, Mom, it's going great. This week I got to go in on a play with Charlton Heston. Yeah, yeah, to be his son. Well, we'll see. I drove out here, 1,400 miles. That was possibility enough. I wanted a chance at the real thing. The audition at the taper showed me that would take time. Now, I could follow a trail of logic from that day to when I shook hands with Mark and said I would grow marijuana in my backyard. I could have been telling myself, Stephen, you have the children's theater job that pays the rent, but you're going to need more money to buy time to break through out here. That's the good spin. The more likely reason I planted Mark's seeds by moonlight 
was that it was a mindless reflex to gain the approval of strangers. But plants don't care about reasons. They only care about sun and water, and my six little seeds had both. In fact, with no knowledge of horticulture, I must have created ideal growing conditions for cannabis in the Los Angeles basin. The plants were a foot high before I knew it. Then three. Then five. Then little flowers appeared. The hedge no longer looked wild and unkempt. It looked like a marijuana farm mixed with ornamental shrubbery. Mark visited the secret garden on a regular basis. He was thrilled. He would occasionally prune the plants a bit to put more energy into the buds, as he would say. Beth ventured outside to see what was happening. When the plants hit the six-foot mark, she decided to have a word with me. Sweetie, those plants are huge. Yeah, I mean, who knew I had a green thumb? Is it safe? Is what safe, I asked. Growing all that pot, it seems like you could get arrested. There's so much back here, it'd be hard to say it grew by accident. There is a law, Beth, that you can have two plants for your own use. Yeah, you have six. And are you sure that's a law, or did you just make that up? Well, she had me there. Now, I I was pretty sure I was citing an actual law, but then again, I am not a lawyer, nor had I ever consulted with a lawyer about anything in my life. So, yeah, I could have made this up. Uh, I'm not sure, Beth. Sweetie, I think you need to be sure on this, or you could end up in prison. I called a new friend of ours whose husband was a lawyer. I told her the situation, and she said she would ask her husband to call me. He did. He calmly explained that there was never a law that you could have two plants for your own use, and having six plants was considered cultivation, which could be prosecuted as a felony. I could and probably would go to San Quentin. The next day, I invited Bob over to take a look at the secret garden. Bob walked past the huge plants, caressed some of the leaves gently, cupped his nose and mouth and took a deep breath. Oh, buddy. Oh, yeah. These are beautiful. Yeah, you're going to jail. Really? I asked. Oh, yeah. No question. And you're exactly the kind of guy they throw the book at. They want to discourage amateurs. Will I go to prison? Uh, Most likely, said Bob. Unfortunately, it'll be San Quentin. I was there for two years for drugs, got stabbed with a shiv by some punks, broke three ribs and punctured a lung. But the good news is they couldn't get at me in the hospital ward. Yeah, San Quentin is about as bad a place as you could go. Won't ruin your career, but it'll slow you down. I'm already stopped, Bob. I don't think I could handle a slowdown. Well, buddy, Bob said, I would consider getting rid of all of this. That evening, Mark came by and I broke the news. Mark, I think we should harvest everything now. What do you mean? Well, I I mean, everything is so big and we have buds and you can't see it from the street, but you can smell it. And I feel like I'm in jeopardy. Mark furrowed his brow. What are you talking about? We're cool. We're going to harvest this during the full moon. That's in three weeks, like we planned. The full moon brings all the THC into the buds. It makes it really toasty. Oh, yeah, I understand that we want it toasty, but you know, I bet it's pretty close to being toasty right now. Mark's hazel eyes darkened. He grabbed me by the wrist and held them hard. Listen, I'm not selling any half-assed grass because you got wobbly on me. I'm telling you, don't screw with me. You got that? Yeah, Mark, I got that. 
We harvest in three weeks. Mark smiled and patted me on the arm. It'll all be fine. That night in bed, Beth and I lay awake looking at the patterns of night on the ceiling. She said, I think you should get rid of those plants. I don't want you to go to prison. I know, Beth, I know. Bob said they would probably send me to San Quentin. Did he say anything about me? What, about going to prison? Beth just looked at me. No, I said, and and I'm not sure they have a women's wing at San Quentin. Why would they send you to prison? For not reporting you. Isn't that being an accessory after the fact or something? I don't know, but sweetie, don't turn me into the police. I won't, Beth said. We lay in silence for a moment. Then Beth spoke quietly. What do you think is in the secret garden? What do you mean, I asked. Well, don't you think it's strange that it's cut off from the rest of the yard? And that a tree is planted in the middle of it? Yeah, I said, that seems odd. Beth continued, I mean, if you've got a big yard, why would you chop it up with a hedge that makes it into two smaller yards? I I don't know. It's an old house. I said, maybe no one has ever taken care of the yard. Or maybe it wasn't always a yard. Huh? What if someone is buried back there? Beth, I don't think... Think about it. Elizabeth said she was born here, in this house. She's in her 80s now. You told me the house is over 100 years old? Well, that's what the real estate lady told me. That puts it back in the 1870s, at least. Maybe they weren't as strict back then about where they put their dead people. Beth, I don't think the place is haunted. Neither do I, she said. I'm just saying, it could be cursed. Well, it certainly is now. I'm taking out those plants. Beth kissed my shoulder. Thank you, Steve Alette. Yeah, I just have to deal with Mark. He's a lunatic. There wasn't time to come up with a plan. The next day, Mark ambled over at sundown to fondle his blue indica. This is so ready, Mark said. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I can't wait. I know, I know, you told me, but we will wait until the moon is full. The moon pulls the THC into the buds. Yeah, and then we bag it, right? No, 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 then it has to cure. Cure, cure, what, what's cure? Well, we'll hang them in your garage for about six weeks, but don't worry, they'll be out of sight, no one will see them in the garage, and then I'll trim and bag the buds and we are done. We walked around the side of the house to the front porch, I told him a joke or two from Easy Rider to casually segue into an exit strategy. Mark, I'm sorry, man. I'm maxed out on risk. Right now, we're not splitting that 50-50. It's all on me. After the harvest, why don't you take the plants and cure them and bag them at your place? Mark stared at me like I was crazy. Are you kidding me? I live in an apartment. I don't have room for these plants. You, You could hang them in your dining room. Mark started breathing hard. His eyes went dark again. He started yelling at the top of his voice, What did I tell you? Don't screw with me! Mark, Mark, I'm not screwing with you. I'm just expressing my concerns. I'm nervous. I'm trying to be honest. Honest! Here's honest! Shut your mouth before I break your face! I knew I shouldn't have trusted you. Mark, take it easy. Mark stuck his finger in my face. Damn you! Damn you! I don't warn people more than once. You got that? I don't warn people more than once. 
Mark, people will hear you. Hear what? Hear what? That little Stevie big-time Hollywood actor's growing dope in his backyard? Mark, shut up. Don't you tell me what to do. You stick to the plan. You've been warned. Mark stormed off at the porch in a fury, vanished into his apartment building. I sat in dread on my swing. There was no longer any peace here. I couldn't think. I sat in cold silence, listening to every sound in the neighborhood, wondering if anyone heard Mark's tirade and called the police. I jumped up and ran to the backyard. I pulled up the giant plants. One, two, three, four, five, six. I got a shovel. I filled in the holes. I planted zucchini seeds in the new mounds. I dragged the plants to the garage. I opened the almost unhinged garage door for the first time. Yes, I was correct about my original assessment that the garage was kingdom of the spiders. At first glance, I was amazed that there were so many different species apparently living here in harmony. But why not? None of them would ever go hungry. If times got hard, they could always eat a spider. The garage was so old, the entire structure leaned to the left. There was no electricity. The only light was sunlight that came through the 100-year-old wooden slats. Along the wall were old paint cans that had turned into something else decades ago. There was a push mower that could no longer push. Time had turned it into a solid piece of rust. I dragged the enormous bushes inside, hung them to cure on nails that had been hammered into the wall sometime in the distant past. Done. I got a beer. I sat out on the swing, looked out at the neighborhood. Everything appeared peaceful. Then Mark came walking back to the house. Hey, he waved at me. Hey, I said. He jumped up on the porch. I owe you an apology. I didn't, I'm sorry, man. I didn't mean to go off like that. I have to remember you're an actor. You don't know anything. Yeah, that's me, I said. Well, you're a pretty good actor because every time I come over here and look at how beautiful our plants are, I think you're a pro. You've been doing this forever, so when you don't listen to what I say, I think you're trying to screw me over. Mark, I wouldn't know how to screw you over. I don't even know what I would get by screwing you over. What, more dope? I could just grow more in the backyard, right? Right, right, Mark laughed and shrugged his shoulders in surrender. And Mark, I owe you an apology. I am sorry. Through this whole thing, I have learned my limitations. I'm never going to do this again. I'm not cut out for it. But if I ever do grow anything again for my own consumption, you could always help yourself. Mark seemed clearly moved by the gesture. He shook my hand and pulled me in for a hug. <laughs> Thank you, bro. Sure. So let me just see my beauties and we'll call today. Sure. I got up and walked with Mark to the backyard. He rounded the corner and saw that the plants were gone. He stopped and blinked in disbelief. Where did they go? Over here. I opened up the garage door. I, I told you it was getting to be too much for me, so I went ahead. I started curing him. This way we'll still have good pot and you could start bagging this stuff as soon as possible. Mark walked into the garage. He walked past each plant hanging by a nail on the wall. His eyes glazed over. What did you do? Well, you know what I did. I told you. What did you do? What did you do? What did you do? 
This isn't how you cure them. You have to hang them upside down. The bud's on the bottom. You have ruined it. Mark grabbed my shirt front and started shaking me until the fabric started to rip. He screamed, why did you do this? You ruined everything. You ruined it. Mark, stop it. Stop it. I did the best I could. You're going to hurt me. Oh, I know I am. I'm going to hurt you real bad. Real bad. Damn you. Damn you. Mark pushed me away and he walked with fury out to the street, then disappeared into his apartment building. I ran inside the house. Beth? Beth? Beth came from the bedroom. What was all that screaming, she asked. Mark is crazy. You need to leave. Now. Go. Beth looked at me on her way out the door. Do you want me to call the police? No, no, don't call the police. They're probably already on their way. Beth left. I locked the door with whatever type of ancient lock the door had. I sat quietly on the rocker in the living room. I don't recall if it was a minute or a year, but the next thing I heard were Mark's footsteps coming up the walk. I saw him through part of the screened front window at the door, hands on hips, looking at the ground. He knocked. Hey, Stephen, come on out. I sat. Mark knocked again. Stephen, I know you're in there. Your car is here. Come on out. I sat and rocked. Mark started pounding on the front door again so loud, I'm sure the people could hear it at the 7-Eleven on Santa Monica. Open the door before I break it down, and I will break it down. Open this door. Stop it, Mark. Stop it. I'm coming. I unlocked the door. Mark pushed his way inside. He pulled out a large silver handgun from under his shirt, pressed the barrel into my nose, and pushed me up against the wall. I told you. I give one warning. You had it. No one screws with me. Mark, Mark, I'm not screwing with you. We had nothing. We still have nothing. We're even. But I could have made a ton of money selling that shit at work. Divided by two, Mark. Remember, divided by two, I get half. How much would you have made? I'll pay you right now. Give me a number. Mark paused and considered the differences between murder and money. I probably would have made 1600 bucks. Okay, and I get half. So I owe you 800 I'll write you a check right now. There's money in the account. If it's no good, you could come back and shoot me. Mark lowered the gun and sat at the dining room table. I pulled out my checkbook and wrote an $800 check for my life. I handed it to him. There you go. And I'm sorry I let you down. It was the risk. I couldn't take it. And then again, I couldn't climb a 60-foot ladder in a thunderstorm either. But I didn't cheat you. Now, please go. I'm sure everybody in the neighborhood heard you screaming, and I wouldn't be surprised if someone called the police. Mark pocketed the check and left. I ran to the garage. I stuffed the remains of the Northern California Cincimelia and the Maui Wowie and the precious blue indica into trash bags, crammed them into my car, and drove to a neighborhood deep in the heart of Hollywood and dumped the bags into a trash bin behind a hamburger stand. I went home. The sun was setting. In the fading light, I did the best I could to make sure every twig and leaf was gone. The secret garden had lost one of her secrets. I walked back into the kitchen. My hands started to shake. I felt so calm and clear-headed for the last hour, almost as calm as when I was held hostage at gunpoint at a grocery store in Dallas just two years before. There's a big difference between fear and danger. Fear is everywhere. We live with it all the time, at auditions, on the freeway, 
using public restrooms? Danger seems to fall from the sky. It's not here until it is, and then nothing else exists. The biggest difference I've noticed is that fear makes you hungry, danger makes you thirsty. I poured myself a little glass of Jack Daniels. I went out to my front porch swing and sipped and rocked. The neighborhood was quiet. This catastrophe didn't even appear to make a ripple on the ocean. Either that, or I was one of the beneficiaries of the willfully blind. Beth came home. I told her about Mark and the gun and getting rid of the pot farm. She hugged me and noticed the rip in my shirt. Steve Alette, don't do anything like this again. You weren't cut out to be a bad boy, even if you wear torn clothes and had an eye patch. Well, it all worked out, Beth, and I got a rare gift. What? I found out how much my life was worth. One month of doing children's theater. Beth shook her head. No, no, it's priceless. Your life is priceless. Well, somewhere between $800 and priceless. Yeah, I'm good with that. I met a little girl and I settled down in a little house out on the edge of town. We got married and swore we'd never bar in little the next day we had a party back then we always had parties always there was no such thing as save the date one of the advantages of not having a future was that any and every day was an opportunity to celebrate and it all happened in less than 10 minutes I would call Bailey and say, Beth and I are having a party tonight. Can you call the Topanga folks? And Bailey would call Bruce and Dee Dee and Bill and Linda. Then Dee Dee would call Joe and A.M. Sharon and Rick would call Ute. Wonderful Wes would call Cheryl and Mary. Bob would just walk across the street and everyone brought beer. 7-Eleven carried an ever-evolving variety of chips. Dinner was served. Bruce Springsteen and David Bowie provided the entertainment. Even in the bleakest of times, it's good to remember that life is always capable of the spontaneous generation of joy. It was a little after midnight. Music was playing. Some people were dancing in the living room. Some were kissing in the hallway. Rick Vardarella sat at the piano and tried to play along with Bruce. Music mixed with laughter, cigarette smoke. The party spilled out onto the front porch. I held court from my swing. I was laughing and telling some of my horror stories from children's theater when T-Bone and Betty interrupted. Stephen, there's someone in your backyard, said Betty with a type of urgency that stopped my breath for a moment. What? I asked. T-Bone gestured to me. I followed him inside. He said quietly, there are flashlights out back. I saw at least six. I don't know what it is, but this is serious. I moved through the crowd into the kitchen. Out the back window, I saw beams of light moving across the ground in the secret garden. I stepped out the back door and called, Hello? Hello, who's there? I was hit in the face with a beam of light. I tried to shield my eyes. I heard someone walk toward me. A voice came from the night. 
You the owner of this house? I carefully made my way down the steps with my hands over my face. I moved toward the light. I stopped and I saw a gun and a badge. I I rent this house. I don't own it. Several men surrounded me. They were police. The man who spoke stepped closer. We got a call about a fight. Did you have a fight here yesterday? Are you growing or do you possess marijuana? Uh, no, sir. One of your neighbors thinks otherwise. No, sir. I mean, mean, we're having a party and maybe we're a bit too loud. We'll tone it down, but there's nothing out here. Please feel free to look. And and you could come back tomorrow when it's light if you want. All I'm growing out here is zucchini, and I'm not doing a very good job at that. The officer looked at me. May we look in your garage? Yes, sir, please. Look anywhere. One of the officers opened the garage. He walked in with two others. I could see the flashlight beams through the warped wooden slats. I called out to them, You could come inside and look if you want. We're new to the block. I think we have too many parties, but that's about it. The head of the detail walked up to me. He got close. He searched my face for a lie. He couldn't find one. Okay, we'll go. We may be back tomorrow. Yes, sir. I understand. Please come back anytime. I work in the schools till about one or two, but my girlfriend will be here all morning. We stood in silence. Then the lead officer said, Okay, boys, let's go. He turned back to me and said, And you know, it may be a good idea to keep things down, especially after midnight. People are trying to sleep. I'll tell everybody we should call in a night. It's a good idea. He gestured with his flashlight, and he and the rest of the officers left around the side of the house. Psychologists will argue that who we are is a battle between nature and nurture. Others say we're the products of our education, socioeconomic status, experience. But I don't think many recognize the enormous influence of dumb luck. Let me count the ways. If the police had come the day before, if I decided to keep the marijuana in the garage, if Beth didn't convince me to talk to a real lawyer, I never saw Mark again. Ever. Never saw his truck, never heard his whistle. Maybe he moved. Maybe he was like a spirit of mischief from a Shakespearean comedy, vanished with the new day. You would think I would have been so grateful to have dodged San Quentin, I would have chalked this up as a learning experience and moved on. I didn't. Three years later, I volunteered to buy a pound of dope from T-Bone's friend in Dallas. I ended up, once again, surrounded by police, this time with their guns drawn. My savior that night was the drug dealer, a cowboy named Albert. He ordered me to French kiss him in his truck as the police closed in. The officers were so amused to have caught a gay couple making out in the moonlight, they never looked inside the truck. They released me with a warning not to be caught being gay again. How is it possible that bad can seem good and wrong can seem right? This is another reason why we are all doomed, unless it is a blessing. We can never know who we truly are until we see the shadow we cast. Maybe that's what Susie Ellen was trying to tell me when she led me to the door in my dream. I stepped out into the sun 
and look back at her bewitching smile. It was Mayhem Day, the movable holiday that celebrates what we are not and shows us what we did not become. It's a little death you survive that gives you one more chance to be reborn as your better self. That was Mayhem Day, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files, or should we say The Slasher Files? Uh, Stephen, kind of kind of close to a, a Terminator movie, this one, huh? It, w- it, was, it, was a grim, it was a grim episode. Grim episode, David, but uh, we escaped unharmed, it appears. Indeed. Well, hopefully you out there listening are unharmed as well, uh, regardless of wherever you are. And we appreciate you listening to The Tobolowski Files this week. Stephen, if people want to see video versions of this podcast, where can they go to do that? Uh, that would be at youtube.com slash tobofiles. <laughs> Sorry, you, you went up at the end there, so I thought you were going to follow that up with something. No, I, I just didn't know if I said it right. <laughs> you said it right. It's youtube.com slash Tobofiles. Check out the uh, live video versions of the podcast there. Um, and uh, you can follow me and Steven on Twitter. He's at Tobolowski. I'm at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. Uh, this episode of the podcast was powered by Simplecast. Check out simplecast.com for a great podcast analytics and management company if you're thinking about starting your own podcast or maintaining one simplecast.com is a great resource for that and uh that's going to do it for us on the tobolowski files this week find more episodes of the tobolowski files at tobolowskifiles.com we will see you next week adios